In this episode, I'm joined by Christopher Watkin, who is the Senior Lecturer in French Studies at Monash University. He's also the author of French Philosophy Today and Michel Serre, Figures of Thought. In this episode, we discuss Michel Serre's text, The Natural Contract, alongside discussions on ecology, pollution, possession, and nature. I'd like to thank all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you'd like to support Ometics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. Christopher Watkin, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. It's my great pleasure to be here, James. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> so we are going to be discussing Michel Serre's text, The Natural Contract, which I briefly thought before starting this, how would I describe it? But then came into the same problem as always is it's a Serre text, so it's difficult to describe. But but but, but I think in short, it's Serre discussing um, man's relationship with nature and philosophically what man's relationship with nature is where we've gone wrong and the idea of um a contract with nature in relation to the philosophical idea of the social contract which sort of i think most famously is from hobbes and rousseau among others Locke as well but that's the direction we're taking but before we start just tell us a little bit about yourself well i'm uh lecturing in french at uh, monash university in melbourne in australia where i've been living since 2011 uh, with my wife Alison and two kids. Um, my research is mainly around contemporary French thought, so I've dipped my uh, toe into the waters of Meloponti, Paul Ricoeur, uh, Jean-Luc Nancy, uh, Alain Badiou, Contamiasu, Serre himself, uh, Bruno Latour, people like that in the past. And uh, I've just started working on a new project um, all about the social contract and where it's going wrong today and how it can be fixed. So I'm sure I'm sure that research will probably come up. But before we jump into the book specifically, uh, I do have to ask you the hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into the room, in, into a room, uh, and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And as we're talking about, Ser, um can include Ser, but they don't have to be related to it. They could be just three that you 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 think would be interesting. You won't believe the amount of chagrin that this has caused me. I knew you were going to ask me this. I've been so, thinking about it all day. Um, the the first thing I thought was okay, I. In my own research, I always try to adhere to the, the maxim, Audi alter and partem, listen to the other side. So let's find three thinkers who maximally disagree with each other. Um, okay. And do you know what? That is really, really hard. You know, they, wh- whoever you, you pick, there are always sort of underlying currents of agreement that subtend their differences. And that's a, a sort of Cersean point, And we might get to it in terms of the... Uh, natural contract later. So I, I abandoned that one. I thought, okay, <laughs> let's do something like Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. Uh, let's put three people in a room, any two of whom will hate the other one for a particular reason. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's what I'm going with. And so my uh, my three people in Sartre's room are Augustine of Hippo, mm-hmm. René Descartes, mm-hmm. um, and, and Michel Serre himself. Okay. And we've also, if, you, if you'll permit me, we've got a mm-hmm. waiting room of Heraclitus and Einstein, if any of the others want to drop out. Okay. So um, who do you see as, who's who's uh, getting hated on? Well, the, the beauty of it is any two of those combinations will hate the other one for mm. a particular reason. <laughs> and I, I will leave it to the uh, listeners to work out why each of those combinations will hate the other one. Okay. And why are Heraclitus and Einstein waiting? Do you, do, would they be the same thing again, or that that was that was my idea? This this is a bit of a on the back of a um, napkin <laughs> type thinking, but yeah, I reckon you could do the same thing if you substituted Heraclitus or Einstein for any of those three. That's what I'm going with. Okay, no, and I think I think that's a good room. I think that's a good room. There's so many there's so many uh, rooms that um, include, as you say, there's always a current running, so it's it's good to have just arguments. <laughs> and I think the idea of entrapping someone in a room with someone they hate is quite funny. So, and I think with <laughs> with Sir, you'd always find that he maybe wouldn't hate the other people, but I can't imagine there's ever going to be someone who he'd fully say I agree with everything you've said. That's quite right. And I think of all the people you could choose, I think Descartes is the the one with whom he might have the the prickliest conversation. Why Why do you believe that? Well, because he writes about Descartes quite a lot in very unsavoury terms. So early on in the Leibniz book, mm-hmm. um, he he doesn't really have a good word uh, for Descartes at all. And he contrasts him with Leibniz in quite a stark way. So Descartes is the the thinker of 
dismemberment okay. of um, analysis in a way that uh, destroys the thing it's trying to understand, as opposed to Leibniz, who's the thinker of federation okay. uh, for, for say. Okay, so we could you could have put Socrates and Descartes, and I think Sam might have just had a migraine and left. The <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he would he would have been battering down the door trying to get out. Uh, okay, it's not his style to be locked in one room, is it? He'd be he'd be walking the corridors. Yeah, he'd be going in each and every room just to sort of tease That's right. tease everyone. Okay, I think many of these thinkers will probably come back in um, as they they usually do. But um, so, where did you first come across? Michel Serre, and why, why, you know, so you've recently written um, Figures of Thought, which is one of the the few uh, English sort of overviews, um, if we can describe it as that, of Michel Serre's work. Why did, why did his work interest you so much to uh, write a full-length book on him? Yeah, I, it's a question I've asked myself quite a lot, and I, I had to write a, the, just after the day that he died, I had to write a blog post to try and work out in my own mind, why am I so fascinated with this thinking? Um, I first came across him when I was writing a book um, that eventually got called French Philosophy Today that was looking at the, the figure of the human in French thought, what, what do we think the human beings are? And what really attracted me to him at that point was his idea of the great story of the universe, le grand récit, as he calls it, slightly tweaking Lyotard's nose. Um, and Serre's point is that the, the great story of the universe is literally the story of the whole universe. It's a 16 billion year long story uh, that begins with a big bang. Um, and he was sort of the, the way that I used him in that book was he was sort of taking a recurring narrative identity, but he was bringing it out of its anthropological shackles and talking about the whole universe in terms of a story. And for the argument that I was putting forward in that book, that was incredibly useful. But I guess the more that I read of him, the, the more that I was attracted both to what he was saying and, and the way he was saying it, um, the, his, his style is is singular and a lot of people don't like it he's been accused of being poetic as if you know poetry was some sort of terrible crime that a, that a philosopher was you know had to be jailed for um but but i think what the way that he's actually writing is partly trying to use language precisely and um, there's, there's one point where he says and yeah I, I remain as much as possible he says in in everyday language i just try to use it precisely you know if i'm talking about sailors I use the language of sailors I don't call it a boat I call it a skiff or whatever um and also that that he's trying to and this is not just Michel Serre I'm not suggesting he's the only one who does this but he's trying to give us in his writing what he calls a, a global intuition okay he's, he's trying to show us a way of being in the world of living in the world seeing it differently but also being corporeally in the world differently and I think his writing does that incredibly seductively you know you won't get that from the first paragraph or even from the first book of his that you read I think <laughs> one of the other contributors to this series said something like you know you've got to read the first four Michel Serre books <laughs> and just get through them before you can begin to see what he's doing and and that's I think a, a thought that I very much echo but that the way that he sees the world I think is incredibly beguiling on that very fundamental level and that that drew me to him and I think finally, he's just very un-French philosopher-ish in many ways. You know, he, he does a lot of smiling, which is not usual. Um, he was resisting the linguistic turn when it was at its height. And that was OK. He was happy to be in a minority. He was happy to be you know, outside the big tent at that point. And, and that's also something that drew me to him. This was clearly a philosopher who wasn't following trends, who was happy to be the lone voice, if he thought that that was the right thing and who, you know, paid for that in a sense with, with his um, career, certainly a, in the early days. And that that drew me to him as well. I got a certain sense there of him being a man of conviction uh, and integrity. And, you know, the rest is is impenetrable. Well, why why is why does one fall for a particular philosopher? I think there's there's a certain amount that you can explain, and then it's like falling in love, isn't it? The more you explain it, the more the explanation uh, become you know reveals itself as being inadequate. Yeah, that which is itself a sort of Sersian problem. <laughs> yes, you can't exactly. use language to describe your love of Ser, which is yeah. Um, okay, moving moving to the book. Um, the natural contract. I'm just going to start with like the the big question, and then we'll probably digress out. 
Um, sure. So it might seem very simple, but what is the natural contract? Yeah, it's not very simple. <laughs> um, it's okay. There's what is the book, the natural contracts, and what is the natural contract that Sarah talks about in the book, the natural contract. Um, I, I, I'll do the second one first. What is the thing that Michel Serre calls a natural contract? Um, it's a way of extending the pattern of behavior and of thinking about relationships that we're familiar with in terms of human-human relationships and pushing that out to include the natural world. And he's got a wonderful image to talk about this in the book. He talks about a group of mountaineers who, who are tied together with a cord, you know, such that if one of them falls, the, the others can, can rescue him. And he says, think about that as the, the social contract. People are tied together by webs of, of obligations and responsibilities in, in a social community. And he says, sometimes when you're mountaineering, you'll tie one bit of the rope onto a, a rock or, or hammer it into the, the, the side of a cliff or something. Um, and, you know, then he says, think about that as the, the natural contract. Our obligations and responsibilities and constraints pertain not only to our relationships with each other, but also to our relationships with the, the natural world. And in a sense, you know, the, the listener can be forgiven for thinking, well, there's nothing revolutionary about that, obviously. <laughs> you know, we're constrained by the natural world. But but then Michel says argument is, yes, but we systematically erase that from our understanding of our own existence. You know, if, if we acknowledged it, that wouldn't be a problem. But we we try to exist in this realm of, you know, urban, he calls it a cosmism. We've forgotten the world. He says in, at one point in the natural contract, we abhor the world. You know, we, we expel the natural world from our polis and we try to exist just in terms of, of language um, and uh, political relationships understood in a human human way and that's why you need the natural contract it, it, in a sense just to show you what's already there you know our obligations and responsibilities are not simply between human beings as if the social contracts adequately describe reality and you know as we'll probably go on to discuss Further, it's not only that this is an omission, it's not just filling a gap, it's that this, this refusal to think the world is very concretely and immediately destroying us. So the, the first one there would be the what what's the what's the natural contract, the book? Yeah. Mm. It's not a book about ecology. So if if Michel mm. Serre were sitting here instead of me, which um which would be wonderful, wouldn't it? You've got the, very much the, the raw end of that deal. But um, uh, he would say, because he said in a number of interviews, when, when people say, what is the natural contract about? Um, the first thing he always says is, it's not a book about ecology. Certainly not. Um, it's a book about law. Um, so it's, he's, he's taking the, the, the legal framework of um, contract um, that we're very familiar with in terms of the way we relate to each other and he's, he's trying to encourage us to enlarge that, to include the natural world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's really a legal argument in the book. So do you think to sort of um, move from that metaphor of it being a legal argument, begun with this image that Sarah brings in right at the beginning of the book of a painting by uh, Goya, um, Cudgels. Um, I think it's is it just called cudgels? Uh, men with cudgels. Men with men with cudgels, which is um, fight. Sorry, fights with cudgels. Fight That's with the cudgels, which is um, two men beating each other with cudgels, as you imagine, but quite <laughs> does what it says on the tin. It does what it says on the tin, but quite faintly, I would argue for the for the painting. If one wasn't too uh, intuitive about the painting, you would actually ignore what they're standing in, and it's painted extremely well by Goya, as all his paintings are. But they are actually sort of. Um, and both ankle deep in quicksand. So the idea there is that actually it doesn't really matter which one of them wins because eventually there is something which is, is um, going to take them both down, which they're both ignoring at that point in time. Sort of like arguing over the ownership of a house while it's on fire, um, <laughs> which is, you know... And while you're inside it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or yeah. And, you know, this idea of a contract seems to me, this, this understanding, th this seems to me to be a problem there with this idea of contract because Sayre's bringing in this idea that if you were to have a contract between two people, you, you have an agreement. You say, right, what do you what do you want to do? What do I want to do? And then we both have this agreement on what both going to contractually get at the end. However, the problem with a natural contract, of course, is, well, nature's not 
the quicksand isn't going to stop. So the contract is almost, um, you have to begin from the side of nature because their contract is already being drawn and is already drawn. You can't sort of, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't move. So I, yeah, I wonder what you'd make of that. There's a lot of questions in there. Let, let's just start pulling at a thread and, and see where we go. <laughs> this is a, an objection to the natural contract that, that's come a lot and, and quite reasonably so, although I think Sarah does have a, a very robust answer to it. It's like, well, you know, the, you're taking this idea that has a very direct application in terms of law. You know, I can sign a contract with you. We both write our names at the bottom of a document and Bob's your uncle, there we go. And mm-hmm. um, how can that possibly obtain? in relation to the natural world. Who's going to sign it? You know, what what sort of negotiation can there possibly be? Um, and I, I think, well, what Sarah says, rather than I, I think, what, what he actually says in, in relation to that in a number of places is, first of all, all the same problems obtained for the social contract, he says. Who signed that? When was it signed? You know, show me, show me the document. <laughs> there isn't one. Uh, and yet the social contract still does important work for us in the way that we think about society. So the the fact that nobody signed on the dotted line is not a make or break deal for the social contract. You know, people still are writing books about the social contract and we're still using that language today. So that's not what it's about. Secondly, it is somewhat anthropocentric of us to take the human paradigm of contract signing and to say that any other application of that term of contract must pass through that human gate, if you like, that anything that's called a contract must be negotiated in a human way, you know, with with deliberation and so forth, and must be signed on the dotted line. And that's indicative of a a broader tendency that Sarah pushes against, which is to take one model of something, and he would see human contracts as as one model of a, a broader phenomenon, and to, to put that in the place of what he calls the umbilical instance. In other words, all contracts must conform to the model of human contracts. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, they're not contracts. You know, human contracts are the the um, the shape through which all contracts must pass. And anything that's not caught in that net isn't a contract, etc. Um, he thinks about it differently. He thinks that human contracts are one instance of a broader phenomenon mm-hmm. that you find all through the natural world uh, and all through all sorts of different relationships. Yet the human contracts have their peculiarities, but they're not the only way in which relationships are formed around bonds and constraints and obligations. Um, And I think if you you are able to wrest yourself free of the idea um, that a contract, which etymologically is is, is a drawing together, a binding together, it's, it's, it's relational language, if you're able to draw yourself away from the idea, this anthropocentric idea, that that must be rational, that there must be a piece of paper and it must be signed, mm-hmm. then I think it's very easy to see how you can have a contract with the natural world. You know, the natural world puts certain obligations upon us. Think about gravity, for example. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things that gravity will allow us to do and certain things that it won't. Now, it's not that there's some sort of great intentionality behind that, but that's not necessary for this broader understanding of contracts. And and nor is it simply the case that we are dictated to, I think this was part of the question that you were raising, by the natural world. So if you take the Goya example, you, know, you could you could fill in the quicksand, you could put concrete over it, um, for example. You know, there, there, there is a give and take, but there, there's a moment at which we doing whatever we want with the natural world will will have a feedback effect, will mm-hmm. come back to bite us. And, and that's you know, very broadly what, what we're seeing today with the rising global temperatures and so forth. And, and so it very much is in that sense a negotiation. There are certain things that you can do. There are certain constraints that are put on you. Um, and there are certain limits that you reach beyond which bad consequences happen. You know, it sounds very much like a, a contract at that point. Uh, providing you don't have human written paper contracts as the only model of that sort of way of relating to to things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you do you think that Sarah sees contemporary relation uh, man's contemporary relationship with nature as something which is simply to be overcome, and that we need to move back towards a different form of relationship by humanity's 
relationship to to nature as it stands you you mean the the relationship of mastery and possession and exploitation mm -hmm. and parasitism and so forth well yes <laughs> if you want to go on living that would be quite useful yeah um i i think i think he wants to move us away from that exclusively parasitic paradigm which is let's take off balance sheet everything that's not human human mm -hmm. um, and let's just take from the natural world, whatever we want, in order to accumulate or increase our, our, our human dominance and, and possession of it. That sort of paradigm um, is, is not only partial, you know, in that it, it's airbrushing out the, the quicksand into which Goya's pugilists are, are, are sinking, but it's also just incredibly damaging um, and not sustainable long term. So yes, he wants to get us away from that to what he calls in, in the natural contract and elsewhere, a much more of a situation of symbiosis. We're living with the, um, the natural world. And again, that's a, that's a negotiation, that's a contract. And I think this is one of the areas where the natural contract is actually quite subversive to a lot of ecological thought that's out there. So, so the, the, the thinking here is not that we, we need to retreat and, and reduce our footprint you know, and we need to, to roll culture back and let nature be nature. And mm -hmm. um, the, the thinking is that actually we need to bring the natural world within human structures, primarily the, the legal structure of contracts. So in, 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 there's a sense in which the natural contract cuts against a lot of the ecological thought that is, you know, let nature do its own thing, let it flourish. Um, and let's let's draw back our human impact upon it. Um there's Sarah's actually saying let's embrace nature within these these contractual structures that we've got and let's negotiate our living together with it in the same way that two parties to a contract would negotiate their living together so this seems to me actually um perhaps i'm off the market but it seems uh, quite a strange investigation into the language that we're using with respect to to nature and technology as well and it's, it's interesting that you bring up sort of the binary thinking around um should we say sort of contemporary responses to ecology this idea of right a reversion and a complete right we need to get rid of technology in the in the form of primitivists who um i always like john zerzan's joke about how many ecological movements use the picture of the earth to promote their movement but he makes the point that you can only have that with the mass technology which is destroying the earth but at the same time it's then saying well you're still working on a binary layer of there's a lot of stuff which has really helped us out to move towards a better world so you could move back to your like hunter-gatherer society but that's a huge leap so Sarah is taking the interesting position of not a not a primitivist not, not a technophile but something in the middle and that is that is a strange position so how, how do we i think perhaps the question would be how does Sarah see us as moving towards this symbiosis well i think if, if i had to describe him I, i'd probably call him in this sense a federalist he, he wants to to federate and to bring in more factors into our thinking so he wants to stop airbrushing out the quicksand from, mm -hmm. from the master-slave relationship uh, and he wants us, you know, at one point he asked in the natural contract, we never ask, where is this master and slave antagonism going on? Where are they? You know, mm. and, and just basically he wants to ask that question. Where's this happening? How do you move towards it? Well, I think part of the answer uh, from Sarah's point of view is this deep shift in terms of, of what he calls our global intuition, our, our way of existing in, in the world. And you know, someone is, is going to be listening to this and they're going to say, oh, how very abstract, you know, mm -hmm. give me policy, give me regulation that we can concretely enact. And, and I think my response to that would be policy and regulation are really important. You know, mm -hmm. laws need to change. But why do laws change? What, 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 what brings about the tipping point in a society where people are demanding the sort of change that then you can enact legally, because if nobody is 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 wanting a law, it's nobody wanting regulation. It's not going to happen. And and I think, and this is part of my research that I'm doing on the social contracts at the moment, that that culture is upstream of law. Uh, that the way that people change, look at the world, changes 
and then law changes to catch up with it. So mm -hmm. if we're not looking at that infrastructural level, and if we're not trying to understand what is it about how people see the world in, in very broad abstract terms and see themselves as people in the world, what is it about that that's led us to the environmental situation that we're in now? Mm -hmm. We don't ask that question at that very deep sort of existential level, then I think we can talk about changing laws all that we want, um, but it's very unlikely that we're ever going to get it done. So I, I think this, this idea of the global intuition is both quite intangible and you know, philosophically in, the, in a derogatory sense of that term, you know, is a sort of head in the cloud stuff, but it's also incredibly and immediately necessary. You know, if people... If people's way of looking at the world and, the, and ourselves in the world doesn't change, then the, the, the legal apparatus and levers alone are not going to be able sufficiently to, to address the, the ecological crisis that, that we're in. And so that, that would be definitely part of what he would, I, I think, the way that Sir can speak into this. Um, he, he's also, at the end of his book, The, the Troubadour of Knowledge, he has... Um, uh, a curriculum that that he plans out. He says, we if we want to try and help people to to understand the interrelatedness of all things and the arts and the sciences and and you know sort of the um, the, the the way of being in the world today. What sort of stuff do we do we want to be teaching them? And he has this little annex to that book where he has a curriculum. So there are some practical suggestions there as well. He's got a wonderful thing about <laughs> well, quite a damning thing but wonderful in terms of the way it makes you think differently about the united nations mm -hmm. um so he says that the united nations is is fundamentally in one very important respect fundamentally flawed um he says because it is an international organization not a global organization mm -hmm. so it's a group of individual national interests fighting it out mm -hmm. uh, for their little bit of turf and territory and, and slice of the cake um, and he says that is 180 degrees different to what a global organization would be, which would be everyone trying to take account of, of the whole of the global situation. And he says, while, while we're simply thinking internationally and not thinking globally, then, you know, of course, we're not going to be able to address the, the environmental situation because, you know, who's there advocating for, you know, the, the, the global water supply, for mm -hmm. example? There's nobody because that's not the way the system works. It's a systemic mm -hmm. failure, you know, a structural failure at that level. And so he's, he's also got propositions to put forward in terms of the way we organize ourselves politically on that sort of international level. Uh, and that also has implications for more local political organization. So it's not just global intuition, but I think global intuition is a sine qua non of coming to terms adequately um, and in short order with uh, the environmental situation that we face mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really liked what you said about the idea of um, culture being down downstream from law. Um, other, other way around. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Upstream, yeah. Sorry, my bad. So the laws change and then culture changes with it, correct? Um, I think culture changes first. The, the way that oh, people see sorry. things. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So right. now you're going to say, no, 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 that's completely No, 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 no. <laughs> that was where I was coming from. So the the that that I just want to reiterate that was the what i was trying to say is that there you know this idea for say that you need to change the the general perspective towards something because the the when you mentioned this the the it's quite a it's sort of a lame but it's actually a very practical example of last year the the mass debate around um plastic straws and removing plastic straws and i remember thinking yeah that's that's a that's a step but you need to step back and actually assess the entire sort of paradigm of consumption that's happening there and whether or not you, you need to constantly have these sort of uh, non-reusable... Because like, oh, we got rid of plastic straws and then you go into the same outlet or you see it and they're still using plastic lids or whatever. So it's like this strange idea that you haven't actually left the, the entire paradigm or entire language that you're using. So this, you know, you were talking about um, laws and regulations. Like, well, if they stay within the same conversation, then nothing's really going to change. So it's like... Everyone wants to eat their cake and have it too, but you need to step back and sort of address, well, actually, there's probably quite a lot of people who want to have the cake and there's actually this whole other cake. So I'm really, uh, this this metaphor isn't going very well, but the whole... The whole um, I like the idea of multiple cakes. That's got to be good. Yeah, but 
but I really like the idea that you you know the the change in perspective with respect to to nature basically which is a very simple thing to say you know what is what is the main the main argument here that's happening so we might have already sort of touched on it but but so obviously we have to have this this contract with nature but what is the perhaps I'm a bit of a someone who always wants to see the end but what is the the perhaps not a conclusion because I don't think you'd ever have a conclusion with say but what is the what where would this direction lead us I'm not sure that I completely understand your question. Where would it lead us in terms of if if we if we all became Sersian about this, what would the world look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, Perhaps that's well, a tough I, question. I, no, I think just on a very a very basic level, we stop ignoring the natural world, um, and and this again that sounds quite quite abstract and, and intangible. But just think, for example, and Sarah makes this argument in the book about. The, the time frames that are relevant for our commerce with each other, for our relationships with each other. So there's there's a, a temporality of the of the polis of the, the the social community that excludes nature, which is really quite short term. You know, the electoral cycle is either four or five years, mm-hmm. and it's it's in many ways useless to look beyond that. And people and the, the the system militates against you looking beyond that. Um, you know, your your uh, looking where the next paycheck is coming from, for example. So th- there's, there's a short-termism that's built into this, this acosmism. Um, but the, the temporality of the natural world is, is much, much longer. So he, he makes the point in the book that the, it takes 5,000 years for the water in the oceans to mix. Mm-hmm. So that's a 5,000-year cycle. Nobody thinks in a 5,000-year cycle. Um, and so one thing that it would look like, I think, is that our view of relevant timeframes would change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really interesting research being done at uh, my university, Monash, by um, uh, the Climate Change Communication Research Hub. And they, they, they did this survey and, and they, they looked at the literature and they said, what timeframes are relevant when trying to convince people to think in ecological terms, to take care of the environment? And they said, forget long-term, people just don't care. Uh, 30 to 50 years. Uh, is the, is the the time frame that you need to convince people things will be different in thirty to fifty years, i.e., in your lifetime, and if not, then in the lifetime of your children. Uh, beyond that, it's it's water off a duck's back, and it's but and that again is a function of a global intuition. Like not everybody in the history of the world has thought like that. Thirty to fifty years isn't an anthropological constant. Mm-hmm. It's the way that we've been conditioned through you know ten thousand little stimuli and nudges. Uh, in our culture to think that that is the relevant time frame for thinking ecologically and so you know if you want people to think longer term you can't just <laughs> you can't just put together a television advert where you say hey everybody let's think longer term that, that there are fundamental structures of the way that we see the world and the way that we understand ourselves as a species in the world that need to need to shift in order to to have that different temporality but if we're going to try and live in the world in a better way than we're doing it at the moment, then that's the sort of shift you need. You can't be thinking next electoral cycle and adequately address the climate crisis. It's just, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was writing something recently about um, the idea of normality and tried to work it out. And the current, the, the our iteration of evolutionary man is 200,000 years, roughly. And so going off of that, we've had running sort of you could say universal running water in the western world for 0.1% of our lifetime and it, this is taken as like almost i would i would argue a priori you know you turn on the tap water comes out but it's like it's 0.1% of our entire lifespan so in what sense that that is absolutely not normal and i think um the 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 way to think about the you know when we were talking about the master and slave relationship the idea that this is underneath and what we've sort of built is this I think for Sarah, you'd, you'd almost describe it in a physical, in, in the birth of physics type of argument as like a vortex, you know, it's something we need to maintain and it can only be maintained if we remember that uh, oh so patient master of nature, which, as you say, nature cycles just don't care about the lifespan of a human, not in a, not in a human way either. You know, it's not like, oh, it doesn't care. It's we're, we're, we're a parasite on that. I think that's a really, really interesting way to take the conversation. There, there are some fascinating things, Sarah, counterintuitive things that Sarah says about time 
Um, what one that springs to mind is that um, I'll just ask, ask the question. You may know the answer. The listeners may know the answer. I don't know. But um, he asked at one point, what is the most significant thing that happened in the 20th century? OK, mm -hmm. and I'll just give people a moment to think, oh, my goodness, what would I answer to that? And he says, and I'll be impressed if anyone not having read Sir thinks this way. <laughs> but his answer is it was a century in which we left the Neolithic age mm -hmm. uh, because the the with the beginning of the Neolithic, we began to settle down, we farmed the land, we became um, agricultural people. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our being was tied to the seasons. Um, it was critically existentially important for us when the rain came, how much of it came, how much sun there was, when the harvest time was and so forth. Um, and if you look at the statistics uh, of the, the percentage of people in the Western world who farm the land up until the 20th century, it's huge. I, I don't have them on the tip of my tongue, but you know, we, that large percentages of the population were involved in the agricultural world mm -hmm. uh, and in, in the keeping of livestock. And then in the 20th century, it absolutely plummets. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a change of epochal moment that people rarely talk about. And, and Sarah, makes the point that th this is a huge change to our being in the world and and to the very notion of of our rootedness into the world uh, and it, it fundamentally changes who we are as human beings that the vast majority of us now are not tied to the land and to its rhythms and to its seasons and that's part of the problem that's part of the reason that the natural contract needs to be written and read um, is that we've forgotten that upon which we are necessarily parasitic you know, there, there were enough people working the land in previous generations to have a certain respect and understanding of the natural world. But that's gone. Most of us live in cities now. And the only thing we need to care about is whether it's raining today and I need to take an umbrella with me. You know, we don't we don't we don't care about annual rainfall unless we get floods. You know, we don't care about how sunny it is unless we have to work outside. And we've lost this connection with the land that existed from the Neolithic period. It's a huge monumental change in what it means to be a human being in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I'm sure I'm sure it's now I really should know but he, he mentions being in the being in the apartment I believe in <laughs> um, which text is it? is it times of crisis I think he mentions it but yeah the idea you know that that's where your being has become but it's interesting you mentioned the the Neolithic period I think abstractly you could say we're moving from a hunter-gatherer and nomadism to uh, beginning to form I guess in Sayre's language, tighter and tighter equilibriums, which seem to, uh, as the atomization increases, as it does, uh, they there's more vortexes and they're just tighter and tighter. But it reminds me of actually the recent statistic that it, uh, I believe it was in America, just just American statistic that sort of um, uh, in the fifties, eighty percent of people had their own business, so eighty percent of the whole population, and now it's something like five percent. So everything is moving towards. Every, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So everyone is moving into these sort of mega structures and it's sort of uh, horrible because it's the same thing where you people no longer have to keep an eye on longer time frames and we're sort of just being pushed into, a, you know, everyone says live in the present, but it's like, well, that's fine if the present isn't this tiny nano present, which is just a, a tweet long, you know. Mm. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure what's, how set. I mean, says I think says theories of time, especially when I was talking to Vera Bullman about the incandescent, are sort of exactly what we're talking about here. This idea of when you look at the when you look at a mountain, it's we we, we our perspective of time is limited to I don't even know how you'd say what how contemporary linear linear time is just this just chunked horrible <laughs> you know nothing is thought of in different times. Is trying to what what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and I think you can do a very similar thing for space as well. And it, it's had a really profound impact on what it means to be a human being in the world, just, just as our changing sense of, of time has uh, and our dislocation from the seasons. His, his argument, um, it might be an atlas, I'm not sure, is that we're becoming increasingly topological in, in the space in which we inhabit the world. So previously, your address meant a physical place you could go to that place and knock on the door mm -hmm. and find the person who lived there that was what an address meant it's not really what an address means now it's only junk mail that comes to our physical address now you know, our address now is 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 an email address or you know um some sort of uh address on the world wide web which you know where, where do you go to find that well it isn't anywhere it, it, it is in another virtual space which can be you know and my address can be next to anything it doesn't work with the same geographical dimensions as 
a physical address. You know, any web page can be next to any other one if there's a link on it. And this, this new way of inhabiting space um, where it's all about vectors and topology rather than about physical distances between things is also fundamentally rewiring the way we see the world with the way we see the accessibility and our right to the accessibility of information, the, the way we see the difference between the, the singular and the universal and all sorts of different fundamental components of our global intuition, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I, I think if, you know, if this is the first one of these that people are listening to, one thing to reiterate is that you could be mistaken in thinking here that Sir is sort of holds a nostalgia for some sort of quaint, natural French, you know, French rurality or time in which everything, you know, we were going to the stores and we were baking our own bread and it's all lovely like that. But but on the other hand, you would be, I think you would almost be surprised if you read Natural Contract first to find that Sarah actually loves Wikipedia and he loves a lot of modern technology and he loves millennials, for instance. And how do you think he he combines these two to make, make that a working relationship? Yeah, the, the first thing is just to re-emphasize the point that you very helpfully made that, that there's no sort of quaint nostalgia in his thought. He, he wrote a book recently, uh, you know, towards one of the last books that he wrote, C'était mieux avant. I'm not sure if it's translated into English or not, but it's like, uh, it was better uh, back in the day, where, where he says it wasn't. He's got this this hilarious character called Grand-Papa Ronchon, like grumpy grandpa, <laughs> who's always looking back um, into the past. And, and Sarah is merciless with him. He says, no, it wasn't um, better, you know, back in the day when polio and infant mortality and, you know, lack of running water and wars and, 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 and mm. were, um, you know, uh, the daily in the newspaper. Um, so absolutely there's no there's no nostalgia in him at all. I think I think the way that he cuts across that very reductive dichotomy between nostalgia and some sort of hyper-technicized futurism, which are probably both manifestations of, of the same pathology, I think if we if we dug into them, I think we'd we'd find that they share a great deal in common. Um, is is this federating vision of his that 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 everything can, can be translated into everything else to use the, the language of his early stuff on Leibniz. And there are, there are links to be drawn between everything. So, you know, nothing, nothing is put outside the, um, the, the pale of relationships. He's, he's got this powerful image that I use a lot in, in the book of the, the pomerium, the sort of the, the, that the legal and religious limits of the city of Rome. So everything inside the Pomerium is Rome and everything outside it is some sort of wasteland. And, or you can think of a temple that everything inside it is sacred and everything outside it is, is, is secular or profane. Um, and he, with, with might and main, he resists that sort of thinking, this dichotomizing of reality into, into something that's privileged um, and uh, something that's that's sort of uh, excluded the abject, you know, to use a Chris Davin uh, idiom, uh, outside it. And so, you know, how on earth then could you either see technology as uniquely salvific or as uh, uniquely um, dangerous? Mm -hmm. um, that, that there isn't that sort of place in his thought. The only danger is in drawing those sort of dichotomous black and white lines that, you know, this is... Um, uh, that, that on one side uh, you, you've got the sacred and the other side you've got the, the, the profane, the, the evil. Uh, that's the only thing uh, that, that he would set himself against. And therefore, of course, there's a place uh, for technology. And, you know, he, 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 when you get into the detail, you, you may disagree with certain things that, that he says about technology. You may disagree with the tone of, of Thumbelina, you know, but, but fundamentally the idea um, that, uh, uh, technology, as as with with other things, are to be embraced and negotiated with, rather than either, um, you know, treated with 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 garlic and a stake through the heart, mm -hmm. or sort of raised up and and you gen genuflex before them. Um, I I think there's there's something profoundly um, wholesome, uh, profoundly helpful uh, about that attitude. You know, don't we don't we so often run either to find an enemy. 
that we can congregate against or to raise something up as the, as the next great hope. Uh, and uh, when have those hopes or those you know, demonizing thoughts ever sort of borne fruit in the way that we thought they would? I, I, I don't think that's a helpful way of looking at the world. It's, it's really interesting, the, the direction you took there, because it, it reminds me, it's a conversation I've had, seem, seem to be having quite quite a lot now, but it's um, this relationship between civilization, modernity, technology, and nature on, on, uh, on, one, on one hand, and then nature on the other. Um, I've had recent discussions about Thoreau's Walden, and um, the, the contemporary criticisms of that book is biographical people say oh he was only four miles away from his home and his mother came and brought him meals and people were still walking by and people were saying well it's a complete failure he was a complete failure and his project at Walden was a complete failure and you think well, I actually see that as more of a success because so much of nature writing that, that I, I my criticisms of Aldo Leopold and Edward Abbey is the writing's beautiful but it's beautiful from a complete absolute negation of of where they've come from. So it's beautiful because they're ignoring everything else, which is which is fine if you want to enter into some sort of almost fetishization of, of nature where you just ignore the city. But Walden, I think, is better for that because he has this, he can almost enter back into civilization, refreshed, and understand it from this point of view of, well, I've been over, been here now. And I think perhaps this is what we're talking about is when when you said that the pathology of those two hyper you know hyper technology and uh almost reactionary uh <laughs> ecology they're they're the same um lock-in you know the same sort of put down the shutters we're gonna have the the cyberpunk dream or we're gonna have the traditionalist dream it's like you both exist and they need to have a communication yeah both of them have the, the French bon lieu, a, a, a place of banishment. You know, a place, you, you've got to expel a bunch of stuff outside in order to get what you want to have those two dreams. And and therefore, going circling right back to the beginning of, of what you just said, which I thought was really, really helpful as a, um, uh, as a summary in a way of, of moving this on, was that you, with say you just don't begin with culture on the one hand and nature on the other hand. You, 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 you don't set things up that way. That's already a pathology. Because, very concretely, what is going on in the natural world and what is going on in the cultural world for Sir is, is fundamentally the same processes. And he, he brings it down to the uh, reception, storage, processing and emission of information. And he says that's what uh, a rock face does. That's what the sun does. That's what we're doing now, having this conversation. That's what a village does. Um, that's what everything does. Uh, and therefore, to try and, and cut down the middle of that and say that there's this one thing right over on one side called nature and this one thing right over on the other side called culture just fundamentally ignores the fact that the, the same processes are happening within these two things that, that we'd like to dichotomize for, um, you know, for our, our own ideological reasons. And so he, he never... He never starts. It's like that, that joke, isn't it? You know, how do you how do you reconcile nature and culture? Well, I just I just wouldn't start from here. I wouldn't start with the, with the distinction to begin with. Um, one thing I would like to bring in, because I think it plays a, well, I think it plays a major role in this book, um, is war um, and Sarah's idea of war. And Sarah occasionally has these moments of real brutal quotes for someone who's often so um, humble and soft. Occasionally there is a real biting quote. And, and this one, um, I think I'll just state it and then perhaps you could move from it somehow but Sayre states since the death of God all we have left is war two points <laughs> the second one of which will directly answer that question let, let me just the first one is just a little bit of context on war in the natural contract because it's a really important part of, of the book he sort of has the what we might call the martial contract as a, a, an originary human contract so he says war exists only between the declaration of war and the armistice. Um, it, it is a legal, in that sense, it's a legal um, state. And that's why he he loses no opportunity to distance himself from uh, Thomas Hobbes' uh, state of nature as the war of all against all. He says, no, it isn't, because if it's a state of nature, then there isn't the sort of framework and structure that you'd need for war. War, he says, is organized. War is structured. 
It's not not the state of nature. Um, and he then takes that that contractualism within that martial context, and he says you have to change nothing about that to get to economics. So he he takes that that shape of relationship, which is the from the declaration of war to the armistice, and he says almost that that that's your model then for the social contract. That's how it works. So there, there's a there's a bigger argument about war going on uh, in the natural contract. I think when he says. Uh, since the death of God, all we have left is war, is that it, it's something like this, as I understand it. It's that with, with God, uh, as understood in the Western tradition, you, you have a court of appeal to, uh, to sort of appeal to uh, that is beyond any particular human interest. So whether we like it or not, and whether we agree with it or not, if there is a God, there is something that is good and there is something that is evil. There, there, mm -hmm. Those, those, concepts have currency beyond what we might fancy them to be and what we might understand them to be. Um, and therefore, there can be a way of arbitrating between competing claims on some basis that is outside those two claims in the terms that they're put. There's, there's a third instance, there's a court to go to. Um, you take God out of the picture, what you're left with is the two claims with no arbitrating instance that they can both appeal to, at least in principle, technically. Mm -hmm. And therefore, well, then how do you how do you arbitrate? How do you decide? Well, often the person with the biggest war machine or <laughs> with the biggest voice mm -hmm. um, ends up winning. And that's just empirically correct, I think. You know, if you look at the Twitter sphere or you <laughs> look <laughs> at the um, you know, global politics, the the countries with the biggest armies tend to get their way and tend to have other people see things their way uh, more than more than other countries do but so that's that's i think that's what taking god out of the picture and then you're left with what means but he does say straight after that um let me just read this straight out of the book um okay so uh, since the death of god all we're left with is war but now that the world itself is entering into a natural contract with the assembled peoples however uh, so however conflictual their assembly may be, it gives the reason for peace as well as the sought after transcendence, close quote. So he's saying that the function that used to be provided by God can now be provided by this third instance external to the, um, the warring human factions, which is the natural world. So I think Goya again. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing that he draws out of the, the Goya picture in the book is that what these two pugilists don't realize yet is they've actually got, if you want to put it in this sense, a common enemy, or if you want to put it in a more positive sense, a common cause, mm -hmm. that they're both going to end up in this quicksand unless they stop fighting themselves and start thinking together about how they're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And it so, so Sarah is arguing that war is not inevitable, necessary, and perpetual now that, that for most people, at least in the West, not globally, but in the West, God has left the picture. Um, but he's saying that even, even given that situation, that the natural world can provide a irenic impetus in the same way that, that God used to be able to do. And, you know, you can see that in the, in the way that, well, you know, we can either keep fighting ourselves or we can realize that we're all going to die unless we stop doing that and turn our attention to the common problem, mm -hmm. which is that the earth is becoming increasingly inhabitable, uninhabitable. Um, and so his argument, yes, is, is quite, quite a doom and gloomish one. Um, but then when you read on in that paragraph, he's, um, he's bringing in uh, the natural world uh, as that which can provide the supplement that is now lacking in terms of that, that, that ironic approach uh, to, to peacemaking. So do you, do you think for Sarah that there is an underlying violence in nature? And if so, how does he view it? I don't think he would say that. I, I think that would be too reductive again. It would be, you know, nature is either red in tooth and claw or it's your, you know, lovely growth of daffodils. Um, well, it, it's neither of those, is it? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, there's, there is some... From a human perspective, there is some brutality in nature, by which we mean that it's not kind to us sometimes. Um, but, you know, that's one. I think, And I think he does say this. That's one particular perspective. He's got a very provocative way of putting this. He's talking about, I think, 
I'm going to get this wrong, but let's just say he's talking about cancer at one point. And he says, you know, where's, where's, where's the good and evil in this? There's, you know, for the human being, of course, it's good to cut the cancer out and get rid of it. My goodness, you know, how could you think anything different? But, you know, and I'm slightly parodying his argument here. What about the plural cancer? It's not very good for that, is it? You know, what about the plural bacteria? You know, there, there, there's always the, the, the perspective of the, you know, the, the, the voiceless, <laughs> you know, I'm continuing to parody, you know, the, the, the voiceless um, uh, bacterial infestation that, that's, you know, not, not taken into account. And so, um, yes, the natural world is brutal sometimes from a human point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of his way of, of philosophizing and thinking about the world is, is that that isn't the only point of view. He's not denigrating, you know, don't go too far the other way and say, oh, humans count for nothing, you know, we're, we're worthless and useless. No, 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 absolutely not. But you don't have to go all that way to acknowledge that there are points of view that are not ours, for which the, the natural world might not be brutal in the ways that we conceive it to be brutal. And so I, I guess that would be my, my way of coming at that question from a slightly different angle. It's, it's neither brutal nor you know, wonderfully, beatifically beneficent. But in addition, those things assume an anthropocentric viewpoint that, that he wants to tease apart and question and at least get us to acknowledge as our viewpoint rather than the, the zero degree way of, of understanding the world and the universe. Uh, and, you know, and there, there, there can never be any other. Yeah, this this it seems that the the sort of beginning and moving towards an an actual natural contract would be this perspective shift, and um, it makes me think of the the um, the passage of the salad bowl in the natural contract, where the salad bowl is passed around and says states that if one was to just spit in the salad bowl, all of a sudden that salad is yours, unless of course someone would want to dabble in your pollution. Um, but this seems to be both a a metaphor towards pollution, but also possession in a way. Staking your claim, marking a board and saying, right, this is mine. How do you think Sayre views this notion that we have of possession? As Does he, does he see it as entirely negative? Uh, or do you think that there's something in that for Sayre where we can move towards a more uh, symbiotic relationship with nature? Wow. Um... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's just it's a brilliant question. And and it's it's the question that he tries to answer with, with the book Le Mal Propre, Malfeasance in English, is essentially an answer to the question that you've just asked. So it, it takes it takes a book uh, to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just try and pull out a couple of things from Malfeasance. Um no, it's not it's not bad. Again, you can't it's the same as you can't just pigeonhole technology and say, oh, it's it's terrible and we're going to hell in a handcart because of technology. And neither can you say, you know, technology is our saviour and we've got no more problems anymore. Um, but possession is what it is. Songbirds do it, he says. You know, a songbird's uh, tweeting is an act of possession of a certain territory and a, you know, telling other songbirds to be better stay away because this is mine. Um, he talks about the, the chanting of a, a sports crowd. Um, you know, that you create an atmosphere within a stadium that, that signifies a certain possession. Um, the, the, uh, in Australia, we have this, this term that the hoon, uh, I'm not sure if, if um, UK listeners would understand it, a sort of a, um, uh, someone who drives down the road very loudly with the music blaring and the, no silencer on the exhaust. Um, going over the speed limit. Well, that similarly, that, that's doing exactly what the songbird is doing, as is the multinational company who pollutes the river next to the factory. They're, they're all possession through pollution, in a sense. And you know that suite of examples shows you that it's not uniformly execrable, nor is it uniformly delightful. It, it, in a sense, it is, it is what it is, and, and it can be damaging, uh, or, or it can be, um, you know, sort of quite quite pleasant in in terms of the songbird. But that is the way that we we possess, we we pollute things. He he has this wonderful quote that he he keeps coming back to, and he keeps tweaking. He's a great fan of rewriting um, seminal iconic quotes from the history of philosophy <laughs> again and again across his his work. And one of the ones that he keeps rewriting is um, from. 
uh, Rousseau's, um, I think it's the second discourse where he says, uh, the first man who having enclosed a piece of ground bethought himself of saying, this is mine and found people simple enough to believe him was the real founder of civil society. <laughs> you know, so possession, uh, property is the basis of society. Um, and he keeps coming back to that from, from different angles um, in ways that make it clear that, that he um, doesn't have a lot of time for this idea of, of, of property and possession. And the reason that I raise that is he comes back around to it in the natural contract in a really, I find quite a counterintuitive way, quite a challenging way. And this is the way he rewrites it in the natural contract. He says, uh, Galileo is the first to put a fence around the terrain of nature to take it into his head to say, this belongs to science, and to find people simple enough to believe that this is of no consequence for man-made laws and civil societies, closed in on human relations as they are. He found scientific society by giving it its property rights, and in so doing, he lays the deep foundations of modern society. So again, this, this sort of grab for property is not simply spitting in the salad and it's not simply the the whom driving down the road you know with the with the music playing um that it happens disciplinarily as well and it, it happens at the moment where science broadly speaking encloses the natural world and says if you want to understand this you must come through me uh, i provide the only set of tools for getting any purchase on this at all um, and what Serre says right from the Leibniz book on, and he makes the argument in, in terms of readings of Leibniz, um, is that there can be no queen discipline or umbilical discourse, he calls it. There's no one language, no one lexicon that exhausts anything in the world. Um, you know, science is, is absolutely wonderful at doing what it does. Um, and he's not he's not being anti-science. You know, nobody here is saying, oh, you know, this is this is another SoCal type hoax. He's sort of dish, you know, um, dishing the dirt on, on science and he's, he's trying to throw it all out the window. Absolutely not. But what he is saying is that the moment that uh, that the scientist says that, that the discourse in which I deal is the only way of getting any purchase on the object that I study that is the point where he would say, no, that's, that's, just, that's just wrong. It gets a certain sort of purchase on it and a purchase that other discourses can't equal, absolutely. Um, but it doesn't get the only purchase that it's possible to have on it. You know, and uh, you can imagine the different discourses that would also account for the objects of which science speaks economics uh, would be one. Um, uh, uh, the the um, literature uh, would be another. And they're, they're doing different jobs. But, but none of them is able, should be able, in Sayre's point of view, to put itself up as the gatekeeper discourse and says anything that approximates to me is true about this object and anything that deviates from me is false. So that's another form of this property. I just raised that to show you that for, proper, for Sayre, property is not just about what one legally owns, the objects that one legally owns. There's a whole discursive intellectual dimension to property as well, uh, which is just as antagonistic to uh, as he is um to 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 the um egregious um excesses uh, of, uh, of physical property as well do you, do you think that's one of the sort of the clear places that the natural contract could affect um public policy and public debate on ecological issues is this idea of you know our earth or this this idea that further possession or different forms of possession would affect public policy in a better in a in a in a greater way that's a really interesting question i i think it ties into this idea of getting away from a parasitic paradigm uh, to a symbiotic one so it's it's not i mean possession can only get you a certain way and i think if if the only tool in your toolbox is a tool of possession you're going to find it really difficult to get to grips with the world uh, because we don't possess it and, and neither is it fair to say that it possesses us. You know, that would be, again, this, this equal and opposite um, fault on the other side. Um, the, the, and that's why I think the contract metaphor is just really, really helpful, because we need to negotiate our living together with it. Um, it's neither that we can exploit and pillage it for all we're worth and get away with it, you know, nor is it the case that we have to 
you know, sort of hunker down and make our footprints as, as small as it possibly can be. And you know, even, you know, these sort of eugenic arguments that, that, that might sometimes pop up, you know, there need to be fewer humans per se um, in order to, you know, in order to be able to live on. I, I think he would, he would frame it in these contractual terms and, and say, let's negotiate, but properly, you know, understanding the, the constraints and the, uh, limits of, of the natural world and, and, and its breaking points, just, just as we understand ours. Um, and therefore, it's much more supple. And I think, coming back to the question that you asked, what, how might this help current debates? It's a much more intuitive paradigm for people. People understand the idea of a social contract, you, you know, not, not its philosophical nuances, but the idea that there's an implicit agreement that allows us to live together in society and not kill each other. You know, if you think recently of the, the Black Lives Matter movement or indeed the COVID-19, this social contract language keeps getting recycled in those contexts. You know, people are annoyed when other people, quote unquote, break the social contract um, or when a particular group in society say that, say, the police are being seen to flout the social contracts. It's a language that we used to and, and it has currency, it has meaning for us. And so to take that language that already has purchase. And, to, and to, to enlarge it, to say, well, let's let's think in terms not simply of a social contract, but also of a natural contract. I think it's a less of a jump for people than trying to introduce some whole new concept and say, well, we need to think ecologically and let me introduce you to this very new way of thinking um, and expect you to swallow it and then get on board and then, you know, sort of take the ecological measures that we wanted to take. I think one of the great advantages of the natural contract is that it builds on something that's already there, which is this idea of the social contract, which does have meaning for people and which does matter. That's very, uh, very articulate. Um, is there, is there something you think we've missed or something you'd like to add in about this book? Well, I mean, you know, we've missed almost everything, but <laughs> one, one always does. Um, uh, look, look, I've, I, I think we've, we've touched on um, enough to give people something to think about as they go about their day, yeah. uh, and there's a lot more we could do. Um, but I think we've probably we've probably done enough. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you, James. <laughs>